and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Asori and with me, as ever, it's my co-host back from his festive celebrations, Luke Chibberton. Yeah, thank you, John. Season's greetings all. Yeah, I don't know about you, Luke, but I uh, am in the I'm in the kind of shape that you, you'd expect from a, a 90s footballer who's, who's just had a, a bit too much Christmas pudding. Yeah, I definitely need an intensive Wayne Rooney pre-season right now to get me uh, to get me back in shape. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking more Mickey Quinn than, than <laughs> Wayne Rooney, but uh, I think the the comparison still stands. And and talking about the nineties isn't isn't that a segue? We wanted to bring you uh, the listener a a kind of Christmas special um, of a slightly different nature to the one that the, that you might be more familiar with. It's not incredibly festive in tone, but it is a really interesting interview that we recorded earlier this year with former Coventry City defender David Beast, um, who Luke, was basically the, the victim of, of probably the, the Premier League's most kind of high profile injury. Yeah, I think that's right, John. It's certainly certainly one of the most infamous injuries of the of the early Premier League era, isn't it? And actually, 2021 marked the 25th anniversary of David's leg break at Old Trafford, which was in May 1996. And as you say, not the most festive uh, material. It, it, his story is quite traumatic, um, and he, he he was very candid. He spoke in great detail and at length about the nature of the injury and the complications that he had. Um, you know, from the moment of the initial trauma through the whole kind of recovery process. Um, it's a really fascinating insight though into the mindset of a footballer dealing with a, a pretty horrific injury what the players and, and people around him have to go through including his family um, and he just gives us that kind of play of view of, of what it feels like to, to, to cope with something as traumatic as that yeah uh, it's a it's a really really interesting insight into into the psyche of someone that that has been through without giving away uh, all of what's to come uh, a hell of a lot because yeah as you'll as you'll find out it wasn't just the the, the injury that Dave had to deal with uh, the 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 recovery was arguably more more traumatic but his his attitude to to the recovery I think is is really something that that kind of everyone can can learn from to to some extent so um yeah without without further ado here's our chat with David. Our guest this week is a former Coventry City defender who played over 50 times for the Sky Blues. Now part of the club's charity arm, Sky Blues in the community, it's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, David Boost. Good morning, everyone. A warm welcome to the pod, David. So this is a podcast about psychology and football and, and dealing with injury is something that comes up quite a lot in the course of the conversations we, we have with the, the guests that we're lucky to speak to on this podcast. Obviously, we want to get into a bit of detail on that with you today, but, but before we do, for any listeners that might not be familiar with your career... Would you mind just giving us a, a kind of a quick overview of your your story in football? Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, the uh, the injury to me is probably what people will remember, and when they find out who I was, it's usually a YouTube clip. Um, <laughs> people of a certain age. Uh, but my my journey into football was um, not the usual route. I was not an apprentice at a football club or anything. Um, Sixteen years old, I was playing works football at the insurance company that I worked for. And that was, you know, just in, insignificant footballer, really. Um, during that, my time in the works leagues, my dad was very much into football and uh, the non-league football club, who were Solio Moors, who were in the conference at the moment, but back then they were back down in the Midland comp. And he pushed me to go and play for their third team, which, which I did. Um, I then got into their first team. Uh, and it coincided with me growing, um, a big growth spurt. 14, 17, 18, I probably grew a foot. 
Um, and then I slowly went down the position. So from being a, uh, a nippy left winger, centre forward, I ended up as a slow centre half. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and then uh, and then following that, uh, I played for a team called Kings Heath in the same league. And we played Moore Green. There were, if you know your history of non-league clubs, but Dolly Bow and Moore Green used to be two separate clubs. So I played, my team Kings Heath played Moore Green in a uh, FA Cup tie. And we I just had to play well against them. They came in for me and then I signed for them. Spent four years with them from 18, sorry, I was 19, 20, then up to 24. They were playing in the Visa, which is probably equivalent to Conference North or Conference South, current Pyramid. And, um, and then I went for a couple of trials. I had a trial at Warsaw. Remember John Barnwell invited me down there. 22, nothing came of it. And then I came to Coventry for a trial. Uh, Terry Butcher, uh, Barry Powell, he was playing for Moore Green. He used to play for Coventry City with a bit of a scout. Uh, worked in the community, which is that connection with me and where I'm, I am now working in the community. And um, again, they offered to go down for a week training, which I did. Um, and then we played a game. Friendly, a couple of friendlies. I broke my toe in the first game. Then we went to Old Trafford where it was Lee Sharp comeback game from his uh, knee injury and 15,000 Man United fans at Old Trafford turning up to see that. There were nine internationals in the reserve side that we were playing. And um, so I managed to get through it with a, with a broken toe. And, and then they offered me a couple of months later, there was a bit of dilly and dally in between. Terry Butcher got sacked. Uh, but I eventually landed in Coventry Thorst in uh, January 1992. You wrote a sign for Coventry uh, and the kind of incident that, as you said, you know, people potentially kind of recognise you kind of most for. So just just kind of talking about that in a bit more detail. So the, the kind of scene for, for people that kind of maybe haven't, aren't uh, as familiar with that story is that you're at Old Trafford, it's April 96, and you, you, I think it's two minutes into the game from, from a corner where the incident happened. Is that, is that right? I wish I'd lasted that long, two minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a, it was like 87 seconds, it was. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so we, we had set, set pieces. I mean, I mean prior to that, um, on the four-year uh, gap of, of me coming from non-league and then getting in, it was the old first division, the first three months I was there, and then it went into the Premier League from the, 92-93 season and I've made my debut then 12 months after I, I'd signed. Um, but on that that injury theme, I've, I've, I've been quite good. I've had a couple of hernia operations about 94 and 95. Uh, we always get uh, sort of ankle ligaments rolling over now and again. But I was lucky enough not to have any calves, hamstrings. Probably wasn't quick enough to get a hamstring injury. Um, and knee injuries. Uh, so that was all. That was all, all fine. So on the on the day of uh, Bank Holiday Monday, nineteen ninety six, it was quite an eventful weekend because we'd come into our usual uh, relegation uh, battle at that time of the season. Two games over the weekend. We played Liverpool on the uh, Saturday, and then we were going to Old Trafford on uh, Monday. And uh, we happened to beat Liverpool uh, at Highfield Road in the old wheel and scoring a great goal. Uh, not quite an overhead kick, but it was certainly outstretched and put to the body's head. And, uh, and it set us up nicely for the uh, going into the game at Old Trafford on the Monday. And it was manager Ron Atkinson had uh, signed, had signed, had um, kept the same team that started on the Saturday for the Monday fixture. Um, we always had set pieces. We had five of them at the time. Um, and one of them was that we'd had the corner. I would go, someone would go to, Noel William would go to the near post. 
and try and flick it on and then there was me and a couple of centre-halves would then come in at the back post for any bits and pieces. Everything went according to plan. Flicked on at the near post, I came in at the back, open goal to, uh, to slot the ball in the back of the net. Um, and then two of the United players didn't want to see me uh, score a goal, so naturally they were going to try and block the shot. And just probably by freak nature that we all connected at the at the same time. So I had um, Dennis Holmes coming off the post, so he sliding into the inside of my right foot. Uh, Brian McClare was on the opposite side, but he was sliding into the right side <coughs> of my right foot. And the leg had nowhere to go than to just spin to. You had, um, I was never good at physics at school, but if you've got two opposing forces uh, coming in opposite directions, then there's going to be a, a, an impact and a break at some point. And that's when the leg snapped just about halfway up the shin. Yeah, so that's the injury, and usually I've seen my day-to-day jobs going around Coventry in the community, and uh, used to be, you know, my dad saw you play, now it's your granddad saw me play, and as time goes on, <laughs> it'd be great, great granddaddy from about, but just tell him now, just, just put um, Dave Buse into YouTube, and then you'll they'll remember. Well, they won't remember it, they'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, you're the one. Obviously, I've lost my hair, there it is, glowing blonde lock. And Dave, so, so, so following, you know, it, it, it was a fairly horrific injury, as, you, as you've just described. What's the immediate reaction of the people around you after something like that happens? So, you know, I guess in your experience, but also for any player suffering a, a sort of serious injury in a match, how do the, how do the club and, and your teammates and the opposition players kind of, how do, how do they respond to something like that? Things got different stages from when, when the injury occurred. So obviously at the time, visually, it wasn't horrific. Um, people didn't know sort of what to do. Luckily for me, there was, um, so if I go through the stages of, of, of immediate, um, then sort of post, and then post post. Um, so on the on the day, there was we had a physio then who wasn't, and this is by no means me having a pop at anyone or anything like that. Our physio wasn't; he was a, a former player who had gone and done his physiotherapy, and you know the minimum you can do through the training through the PFA and things like that. Luckily for me, at Old Trafford, they had like all doctors all the qualified physiotherapists who were on hand to make sure I was given it. Because at that time, they didn't know the full extent of the injuries that I'd got. It was just looking like a normal, well, it wasn't a normal break with the way the angle of the leg was and the open wound. So I had, I had good treatment at, 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 at the pitch side with the good people around and allowed them to do what they did. So basically, it was just get me into the back of the ambulance and get me off to the hospital. Um, the story I always uh, talked about the most painful things other than the actual injury. Because uh, I just went into shock after, while I was lying there on the pitch and with a photograph of Dion Dublin, sort of hand on his head, sort of looking up in child, I'm just, just lying there, stay still, don't move. Pain, if you don't move, the pain won't go. And, you know, I can only imagine that's what, what's shocking. Um, but when I went on to see her to the ambulance, outside of Old Trafford, they've got the biggest speed bump all the way around. So when the ambulance is trying to get out of Old Trafford around the pitch, there must have been about 20 these speed bumps where it was just going... <laughs> and that was just up and down. So that was... Um, I remember that vivid. Um, and then uh, I was obviously just straight to hospital then. Um, and they were just looking at that stage just to reset the, the leg, um, pin it, sew it up, and then, and then go from there. And, and that's when the complications happened after that. 
Dave, that that kind of situation that, that you described, so you Coventry having a, a physio that was uh, relatively kind of inexperienced to kind of some extent, did, was that? And, and again, I think as you said, you know, we're not we're not kind of criticising anyone in particular here, but was that kind of typical of the footballing environment in in the nineties? I think it was just changing. It was just changing. There was definitely an old, you know, like probably back from the 80s. And again, and, and, and George looked at, looked him to, to bits. And if I still see him about now, you know, this is, again, it's not about him. He, he just wasn't, he was a, a physio who'd gone through whatever the, become a, you know, the old school. Someone's served the club well. Uh, what role can we give them at the club? Same as the kit man, same as, you know, the people who are in the, the line. They try and, you know, they're accommodating and they're all part of the, you know, the 87 Cup winning team and, you know, the people Coventry have got a great affinity towards them. You want to look after them and it's absolutely great. So this is no mean, this is, you know, George went and did a, a course, physiotherapist course, which dealt with day-to-day injuries for all players, knees, ankles, calves, strains, everything like that. And then the club have doctors, which, you know, and you go through that process. So there's nothing wrong with what was in place there then on that day. I was just lucky that, you know, and all clubs have to have doctors. Even back then, you have to have a, a doctor there, whether it's an orthopedic doctor or a, a different doctor. You, you just have to be the number of staff, as you imagine, is called Trafford that they had about to assist. Was just better that it happened there rather than anywhere else. I've got George. You know, the utmost respect for George and what what he's done, and that was a freak accident. Which, well, it's no physiotherapist qualified, fully qualified, half qualified would have known what to do on, on that particular day. Or would have been limited on what he could have done anyway, because you know basically you had to get him off the hospital. So, so Dave, the immediate um, aftermath of the injury, you, you've had that painful ambulance journey to the hospital. Uh, you, they, they've kind of, as you said, they've done the immediate kind of treatment, which is to kind of pin it, um, kind of deal with the open wound, like you talked about. Where does your mind go, kind of after that, in terms of starting to? So you've dealt with like the the trauma of that moment, but now I guess you start to look forward as to how you're going to recover, what's going to happen next, what's going through your mind at that point as a player. I think it changes over the years, if I'm honest, because as I say, you know, a lot of shock would have been been involved. There's various recollections I can remember. Um, I remember Gordon Strachan, assistant coach at the time. Members thinking at that stage, I thought it was just a broken leg. And at my age, I thought I was just something saying to him, Oh, that's it now. And my, my career's over as I was, was on the stretcher going into the team because, you know, broken leg then, you know, not like it probably is today with medical advances. If you, know, you saw that, you know, the, the, the lad last weekend with the dislocation, um, you know, they could pop it back in, they can be back playing within next week if there's no complications. They'll probably cover that a little bit um, more with. With, with my injury, but um, in that initially thoughts are I broke my leg, I won't be playing football again. You know, I, I try, I've gone the hard way of getting into professional football to be over. And he just reassured me, you know, as, as you would do, you know, going into the uh, going into the into the back of the ambulance. Um, but I think then, as, as as I think, so when I woke up the next day, um, you know, I got massive thing around my. I wasn't in a cast or anything, but a massive thing around my foot, back. So they call it and I was in just I had the most excruciating pain and I just kept telling them my toe felt like it was the first and I kept telling them and uh, they said they came in and said look we're going to have to take you to the or I was in the orthopaedic good hope I think it was don't think there uh, we need to take you to the plastic surgeon now um, and what had happened is the muscle down the side of the tibia and fibula on the outside 
where the impact had come from that side, the muscle was basically exploding, so they call it a hematoma, uh, deadly um, um And that had got so severe that it was on the verge of basically popping out because of the, the pressure, and that was what was causing all the pain. So the next operation was basically, and I had 10 operations in 12 days while I was on the initial injury. And what they'd done was they'd just slice down the, the outside of the mill to release the pressure. Um, and that's where my problems started. Because as soon as you do that, I mean, I had an open wound anyway, a halfway down a shin where the bone had come out. On top of that, I then had to, I then had to cut the muscle, which then you've got two open wounds. And at the time, uh, MRSA, which is still a massive um, sort of bug, uh, anti-healing bug, and I contracted MRSA while I was there. You know, and it, you know, my sister's a nurse, and, you know, most nurses will carry it around with them and, and stuff like that, because they're in that environment. It can be, you know, life-threatening if you get that. It's basically an anti-healing bug stop, you know, nothing heals. So um, my first sort of 10 operations, so that's, that's sort of an external fixator on which held the bottom half, the top half of the bones, like the pin there and a the bar across the top on either end of the bone. So that helped the, the bones to knit back that way because obviously the gap on the break. And then the muscle on the outside, I basically didn't have the blood supply to so the tissue was dying, the soft tissue. And it happens to be the soft tissue that pulls your, I use my hand to show you, so all these tendons here, the one to your thumb, they're pulled from the muscle. I'm showing you my arm, but it's relevant to the leg. So that muscle there is the one that was cut. So in effect, that muscle was then, through the uh, infection, was um, of no use and couldn't be used again. So in effect, I had no muscle pull my foot up. So if you do that motion with your feet, you can, you'll see it's your muscle in your leg that's actually pulling it. I lost three of those tendons that to be cut away because of infection. Luckily for me, I had my uh, big thumb one was still in place. So further down the line, after a couple of years, I had a, an operation to allow me not to have a drop foot. So we basically pulled my, because that's your strongest one in your big toe. And basically, if you pull that tight, it holds my foot in that position. So even though it doesn't drop down, it holds it there. So it helps me to walk. Uh, and it's easier to run fully enough that than it does to walk. You, if you see me walking, I walk with the limbs. So, and that's ultimately what stopped me playing football. And I didn't find that. I mean, I mean I'm talking to you this in about five minutes, but this went over a sort of a six month period. I sort of knew that down the line in six months' time when they were telling me that I wouldn't be playing football again, I sort of already knew. Well, I did, I did know. Because I thought if I can't pick my foot up, I can play football or run or walk, you know, let alone play professionally. So just picking up on that, that last point when you were talking about the fact that you would kind of internally accept the fact that, that you might not might not play again. How do kind of medical professionals and club representatives in general, how do they generally kind of balance the need to be, uh, on the one hand, kind of reassuring to the player? Because I presume when you're kind of first injured, you need some kind of emotional reassurance with that kind of quite honest and accurate kind of feedback. It must be quite a difficult balancing act. Uh, it, it's tough out then because of the nature of my injury. It was outside the realms of normal football injuries, so I, I was I was never under. Um, I never went back to the physio or the club doctor uh, with mine. I was always I always went always used to go back to Manchester. I was, I, basically, I was I was there for six weeks initially anyway, and then I was going there three days a week to get the wounds changed and, and cleaned. Uh, and so the club had no 
they didn't know what to deal with. They didn't have the expertise to deal with it. So I just went with the good doctors that I was involved with there in, in Manchester. I had my orthopaedic surgeon and I had my plastic surgeon. But I had to have a skin graft. I talked about the blood supply not being there, so I had to have a, um, my calf muscle had to be rejigged. And I had to have a skin graft to then cover the hole from when the initial break came. Um, so, I was, so I was dealing with, um, I mean, I've got very good family support. Um, always have done, whether it's through my football career or just career in, in, in general. And um, we've always been brought up to have that positive outlook. And I think to be a professional footballer, probably back then, so I'm talking what we know today and what we knew back then are probably two different things. And mental health certainly wasn't an issue. Um, but with myself and programmes that we run with our charity Sky Blues, we run mental health programmes, we run women's mental health programmes, we run children's mental health programmes. So it's going to come a lot further than it was back then. But we're talking about that there. But I just happen to be quite a resilient person, determined person anyway. Um, I'm not saying there wasn't days where I was, you know, regretting not being able to do training or play matches or career was ended, but I've always been a person that looks forwards, not backwards. Um, I was grateful for the, the five years I had in the professional game. Uh, I'd had a living outside of the professional game before, so I knew I could go back to the normality of, of working life paying bills, you know, and that that's the biggest thing for me. How do you then provide the event? Football was only ever going to be a short term. The money wasn't in, in it then as it is now, so it wasn't like five years I, w- I wouldn't have to work again. I had to, to plan. I could go back to financial services, which is what I was doing before. Um, but when you're involved around football on a day-to-day and people are paying you to play football, keep football there, you sort of want to stay into it, which is where the career sort of took a path when I went back with Barry Powell, who was running the community team, offered me a job coaching and then I went through the PFA to do my coaching badges and ended up, you know, here I am today. Um, but to your point around the mental health part of it, uh, as it's, you know, and, and I'm absolutely brilliant that it is out there because I was around players that had had injuries before and you, know, you just see them physically, just, they, were, they were like drained. The, the, the biggest part for me is, and I took myself away from, from it because it's really detrimental not just to me but to the players so with me being in the dressing room and being around the playing the training ground with this massive dictator thing I was in a wheelchair for a few months as well a good friend of mine Paul Williams um, used to pick me up and bring me to training it, I could see in them and in myself that it, that it was wrong it was a, I was a reminder of what could happen uh, on the football field where it is it, is, it could happen um, and then when you're there and you're injured, and it's a bit like people who get normally injured, you're taken out of normal day-to-day stuff and you miss that. Your routine changes. You're, you're there going to see the physio, you know, icing and statics and exercises. It's a totally different thing, and you're not part of it. And it's, that's, that, that's, that's tough. Finally realising you're not part of that and you're having death effect on other players. No one told me it was. I just knew it myself. So I took myself away and didn't, didn't go and say, I went to the games. Um, and that, that just, um, I just found it quite hard to watch football for probably probably twelve months. Um, just from the you know just seeing them running around, not because I was thinking, oh God, that should be me. I should still be doing that. Um, it was just I had a little bit of a fear of any contact, you know, because of what had happened to me. Dave, that, that's so interesting. Um, 
I guess you're kind of going through what must, you know, what sounds like an extremely difficult situation for yourself in terms of dealing with an injury, but also thinking about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. But really interesting to hear you say, actually, you're also thinking about your own teammates and kind of the effect it was having on them. Did, did any of them ever kind of speak to you, you know, later in life, you know, after your careers about, about the effect that your injury had had on them in any way? Or Because or, you mentioned kind of at the time, you know, Dion Dublin holding his head. It must have, it must have hung over some of them in their minds to some extent um, while they were kind of trying to, carry on business as usual at the club yeah I say no we haven't um, I haven't had those conversations there used to be a saying there's no friends in football and, and I don't I don't like that and it's merely because you know someone will come to a club for one or two seasons or move on you know some people can have eight to ten clubs and you could end up with you know over 200 you know football friends and, you know I've got um, I don't know if it's just us about how we work obviously but we've got um there's a group of five or six of us that still keep regularly in contact with me for, uh, once a year. Um, as I said, I've mentioned Paul, Paul Williams, who was at the time, and still is, I still, he's just moved back to Birmingham. Uh, and we catch up and we were, we were really close, but we never had those conversations about, about what, what happened or how it affected them. Or it's just, um, I don't know if it's when you're with footballers or whether they don't want to talk about that, that side to other footballers. Um, you know, it's a tough one. I've, ne- I've never had that conversation with any other footballer, whether it's a former Coventry player or, or not about it. And, and interestingly, even with family members, and um, I probably over the years I then find out. So I'll, I'll speak to my brother, and he'll tell me how my dad was when it happened. Um, I'll speak to my dad, and he'll tell me how my brother was, how my wife was. I'll just, just a, a, a no, no, you know, preset way of everyone coming together to talk about it. Some will go. Oh, I remember when we, you know, when we got the phone call or whether it's my mother and father-in-law are no longer with us. How, my wife would tell me how, how it was impacting on her when the news was filtering through, through the media um, and how they were dealing with it. Because footballers, you know, they're probably a little bit selfish. With everything. It's, they've got their own world and their own cocoon within that team environment. But outside, it's because you're focused on the next game or the next training session. You sort of you're in your set routines a lot. Probably a little bit, yeah, sort of, not deliberately, but you sort of think, well, you know, look, I've, I've got an important job to do here. You need to leave me alone. <laughs> you know, now, I was always, I was always slightly different. I, I think slightly different to that. But but we are we are. I could be quite. I could be a closed person anyway, regardless of whether football or not. In in my role now, I try to be, you know, as open as I can. I always, I'll always talk about uh, these things. Um, I mean, you you guys trying to get me onto your show, and it's great because it's it's wanting to relive uh, my uh, experiences, and if you can pass on and help people in any way, that's that's great. But I've I've got to the stage where my story's been told so many times and been reported so many different ways. I get it's not because I don't want to talk about it. I just think I have the opinion. People have have, have heard the story. They've heard all these you know anecdote things that I've been talking to you about, and it's, it's more my thinking that people have had enough of my story. Well, I mean, rest assured, though, there are some people out there that do want to, do want to hear it still. So, um, one of the things that you, you have talked about previously, I think, is, is kind of goal setting and that being something that was really important in, in your recovery. I mean, what kind of what kind of goals were you setting for, for yourself and how did that help? It was about, it was a reality check that I'd been given. Um, so when I was in hospital, one of the the outcomes of one of the operations was that they would have to remove the lower, below the knee of my right leg. And that, believe me, 
we get playing football again. That is a massive reality check. And then you, your your views on what you want to happen. And this is me talking now, post what, at the time, at the time, I might have been looking back now, my recollection of it, say 24 years ago, is probably where I was at and where I was thinking. So when someone gives you that information, that you might not have your right leg, you're not thinking about football. You're thinking about how am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to walk myself? How am I going to be able to cope with, with football or without a right leg? You know, and that's a very daunting prospect. So then when you come out of that operation, but you're locked down in your leg, you've got two legs there, you think, right, everything else is a bonus. Believe me, everything else is a bonus. So at that point, it was right. What's the plan? What's what's the best outcome? What's reality? Even though I got told six months later that physically my um, drop foot and the losing the tendons that would stop the pain again, and there's nothing they can do about it. I knew prior to that that was happening. They just confirmed it six months later after they tried to do everything they could. So my goals then were right. At the moment, I'm lying in the bed. For me to get out of the bed, what have I got to do? So I've got to go back to doing. I had some weights. Um, I've got, you know, to be, when you're in hospital having an operation, you've got to be, still be physically fit to cope with all those operations. And then over the next six months and a period of six months to two years, probably had another 20, but altogether 20 operations during that two-year period. Ended up with a grand total of 24 operations. And one was the corrective surgery, which pulled my foot up, which is, you know, the best operation that, that I had. So in terms of goal setting, it was then going, right, I want to, what have I got to do to get out of the hospital? It's one of the most, you know, when you're injured and you're lying there all day, already sick, um, especially like if you think about what COVID has, has happened over the last 18 months, two years, just lying in hospital bed is one of the worst worst things for you. So my goals were, how do I get out of the hospital? Luckily for me, my sister was a nurse. So I could say to them, my mum was a nurse as well, but whatever you're doing, my mum and my sister can do back in, back in Birmingham. I'll come and see you travel up two, three times a week, just to get me out of the hospital. It'd be better for me. And I think that thing is one thing to change is they want to get you out of hospital a lot earlier now because just from your own talk about mental health, just being in that home environment with people around you is much better. Um, you know, as long as it's safe and secure to get you out of the hospital in the first place. So that's exactly what I did. Put plans in place. So in a wheelchair, how do I get out of the wheelchair? Go and learn to walk again. Because it wasn't correct things. So for me to walk again, I needed a pair of shoes that could cater for the, had a plastic mould made, which kept my foot up in that position, which went all the way up to just below. Obviously, that took all my shoe trainers, which I already had, out of use. I couldn't use them. So what I did was I started putting the toes out of the ends of them. So I just had the bottom, which went, which went on the bottom of the plastic thing. And then I wore the other one, same, and just did the laces up. So you, so you just adapt, and these are all the little things. So be able to get out, get out of the wheelchair, then start doing a little bit of walking. I then went to, um, obviously I was having physio as well. I was talking to people about, because I'd had to learn to walk again um, with, a, with a limp. And as I said, it's easier to run because the running motion takes you forwards and upwards with your knee coming up. Walking slows it down. Um, and I've, I, I have got to pronounce limp, if you can tell the way I work. But I had to learn to pick my leg up centrally, plant it forward, because I'd just be tripping up on anything like a, a little raised curb and you know, in the pavements because my foot just wouldn't clear it. So I had to learn all those. And it was just setting those small, achievable goals um, from the bathing, the walking, that wheelchair, getting back to doing more physical stuff because the 
you are, the more you can cope with it. I still had um, infections, which is why I had to keep going back and having various operations afterwards. And my fitness, I believe, is one of the things that enabled me to, to fight those infections and get me back quickly. And that was the norm- normality of what I did as well, you know, from day to day, about fitness and keeping yourself occupied. And I needed to engage my time on that. So I had two years. I, I enrolled on a college course sports therapy and massage and sports massage. And, you know, just things to keep, keep me out there at the housekeeping um, and, and retraining me as well. But it's after uh, those two years that I started doing my coaching qualifications during that time um, with, my, with my leg again, which was a, a, good, a good distraction from everything that was going on. Something I wanted to ask you, David, all of that stuff you're describing there, in terms of the, the sort of mentality, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, actually, in terms of the mentality that you have to have to kind of deal with the psychology of all of that kind of goal setting. And, and, and you know, in your case, it's very extreme, but for lots of players, it, it's about kind of getting them back onto the pitch. What's the biggest bit of advice you would give a player going for a, a serious injury like that in terms of how they have to kind of approach the recovery process? Exactly what you just said there about the small achievable goals. When, when I was injured, there was a couple of young lads around me that had to finish through, you know, knee injuries and things like that. They were there day in, day out doing that. They were there, but not part of it because they were going through their uh, recovery, not their playing side. Of it. And they were, all, they were always saying, oh, you know, sorry, I'll be back next week. I'll be back in three weeks. I'll be back in four weeks. And it, I think that's just unrealistic. You've got, you've got to go right out to it. In my opinion, set myself small achievable goals that you can aim for. And then when you get to that, set yourself another one just a little bit further. So with me, just, can I get out of bed? Can I get out of the wheelchair? Can I walk? Can I run? You know, and then worry about, can I keep the ball? And I think it's just those small achievable goals which will help you mentally. And also do something to occupy yourself because, you know, I was never one for reading or anything like that, but the, the coaching I went into and started on my coaching journey, which every grassroots football uh, coach does at the moment. And I've, since then, I've, I've, I've become a tutor of the grass, grassroots coaches. And I, and I love that side of it. But at the time, going through my coaching and coaching is different to play, you know, and I wish I'd, I wish I'd done my coaching badges before I played. So it, would, it, it, it explains quite a little bit more and an understanding of what, of what goes on of the individual within the unit, within the team. Um, and it would have helped me, I think, if I'd, if I'd done it the other way around. But most players will do it at the end of their career because that's when they start to think about what I'm going to do afterwards. So, and I'm a big advocate now with BFA to get it. Do you, whether it's your coaching badges, whether it's another career or, you know, whatever you want to do, plan for your life after football, especially with the lower league teams who haven't got the financial security that's, you know, the top of our game. Dave, you mentioned earlier that in, in your instance, actually maybe there wasn't quite as much financial worry attached to the injury because you'd already had some experience working outside of football, you know, was a route back to, to, to kind of earning money. But for, for players, you know, now playing in the lower leagues in, in particular that maybe aren't earning as much money as you kind of see advertised, you know, when, when you're looking at players in the Premier League, what, what kind of financial concerns do they have and what, you know, what kind of impact does, does that have on players in kind of your experience of, kind of playing with different people? Oh, massively and it's all dependent on what support mechanisms you've got around you what how you've looked after yourself prior to them what age you are at the time you know what your commitments are you know, have you got a wife got family you know if, if, when I look, look back the fact that I went into it already worked in the workplace for eight years before I went professional that I had a grounding in the knowing that this is a very short career 
what can I do afterwards if not go back to what I want? I see a lot of young youngsters who are just you've got this only dream in their head that they're going to play football at the highest level. I think the reality is when you look at the percentages of who makes it, whether you're an apprentice, white seal, or whatever they call them these days, it's so small. And, um, you know, the, now the PFA are heavily trying to get players into that sort of state of look. You're probably not going to make it. Just be real about it. You're probably not going to make it. So what do you want to do after? Still have the same ambitions when you're, you know, coming up to your, your GCSEs or your, your A-levels. And I still carry on doing them. You know, the processes are in place for them to do that and give them that vehicle. But if you go to the other screen, season pros have spent years but not planned for life after football. They'll end up having to do something they don't want to do because it's, it's, a, it's a means to, you know, paying the bills, isn't it? Probably not so much now because of my involvement with the job I do uh, now, but in the early days of when I first been out, I was um, you know, on, the, on the PFA get criticised for a lot of stuff, but they can go to players, especially the ones who, you know, sort of means tested as well these days. But um, if you're on your absolute, you know, last last penny or anything, like that, there, there's somebody you can go to, they'll put things in place, they'll try and put you through training, pay for your qualification, things like that. So it's help out there. There will uh, operations if you can't you know, access it. You just have to know who to go to and how to approach it. It's too easy to go, oh, they don't do enough, but they have processes in place. And you just, uh, and post-injury, they were, they, were, they were brilliant. It's funny, you sort of preempted a question I was going to ask there. Dave, I, was, I was going to say, do, do you think football does enough? I mean, you, you've mentioned a lot of the things that are out there. Do you think collectively football as a whole is kind of focused on kind of you know, at the front end of the game, prepping young players for the possibility of not making it and what they might have to do if they end up kind of not getting a contract professionally? And do you think there's enough safety net there for players that drop off of it as a result of injury and things? I mean, you sort of have already alluded to some of the stuff that exists. It, it, it's tough because obviously, you know, I'm the biggest thing. Um, for me, for footballers, you know, they always get criticised the amount they earn now. But, you know, if it was any other, they'll be classed as entrepreneurs earning that amount of money from something they're, they're good at, so whether it's playing football, or you're into cryptocurrency, whether you're, anything else you do, if you earn a fortune out of it, you're classed as an entrepreneur, as a footballer, you're greedy so-and-so. For me, it's like everything, it, it's, it, it's supply and demand, the wheels have turned, and you look at my unfortunate position, I, I was one of the first Bosmans, or would have been. Uh, I was out of contracts in April, and then the, I would, in effect, become a free agent from June the 30th. That's just timing. That's unfortunate. That's, that's life. You know, you get on with it. So it, it's all about how you how you see yourself and your your position and, and its position of value. Now it, the players have got the upper hand, you know, but it doesn't equate all the way down the, the levels. You know, you, you just look at uh, COVID happening and the clubs that were going walls and people that would play work and play football, and that would be an extra income for them. But they weren't able to get that anymore. I think the money should filter down to the grassroots level a little bit more. But, but again, you look at the model, you know, advocating anything. They're saying, well, why, why, why should we give all of our money down to, to that level? But it's what grows the game, and that's what we've got an FA for, and counting phase, and there probably needs to be a bit more joined up working with those partners to do that. And it is going ahead because, again, I think alluding to the job I do, you know, we, we've just got a, a grant from the... Um, the FA um, Football Foundation Premier League in partnership with the school, second school road to build a 3G. We'll have it for use after five o'clock. We'll have it for use in the daytime. That's perfect use of, 
of, of money that's come from from football. It's a great model the community will benefit from. Dave, back to one, well, back to the point that you made earlier, which was around the, the Harvey Elliott injury. There were there were some kind of comments after that 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 were kind of suggesting that that might have been not down to exactly, but that that injury you know, might have been part of uh, some some kind of more lenient refereeing that we're seeing this season. So you know, improve the flow of the game. I mean, what 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 did you make of that? As you know, someone that has been has suffered from a long term injury. Is kind of more lenient refereeing, is that a risk at all to, to kind of players or, or not? After watching the Euros this year, I, I, I loved started watching football again because the referees there were allowing, they weren't pulling up, in, in my opinion, we've gone, a player can be touched and dive around and even though they've been completely fairly tackled, the way they react to being tackled can sway somebody's opinion of what actually has happened. Now, obviously, VAR will come in and interject now with whether that's sending off or not or how they think it's going on players' reaction. So I love the fact that we've, we've gone too far the other way with the offside, um, you know, the fingernail being slightly ahead of that. And for me, it should always be, the, uh, we want to see goals in football, so it should always be advantage. If you're going to go either way, it should always be advantage of the forwards because we want to see goals. And that's the nature of the game. That's what keeps it entertaining. So I love the way that they've changed into letting, sort of realising that, you know, if a tackle's a good tackle and, and that's how you've seen it, then, then let it go on. Stop stopping the game for the nifty little thing that, that spoil the game. So I like that, that's come into it. And I like the way that, that, that change of refereeing is, which allows a little bit more physical. Obviously, we want to protect the players, but we want to protect the players from the two-footed, over-the-top uh, of the ball challenges from behind so you can't tackle from behind anymore you can't come in from the side you basically can only come head on can't um so i'm all for, for keeping that out of it but if you look at the harvey elliott one and i think you know maybe the referee was persuaded by the extent of the, of the injury and looking back on it they might go actually you know because it was it, it was coming from behind and from the side but it's unfortunate that he, he had a dislocated ankle out of it if he hadn't and he just got off because he hadn't been injured, it's all about timing, which is what happened with me. He probably would have got a yellow card. Yeah. And that's, that's probably the best way. Now, we all want to react because we were emotional and we're seeing a player with a dislocated foot and it looks horrendous. And, uh, but we, we, we've just got to sort of take the emotion away from them. And that's hard because we're, we're human beings and everyone's up jumping up. And the reaction to probably the actual the outcome of the incident rather than the actual incident itself and I think that's a fine line so I want you know I, I like the physical side coming back into it allows you know people that not that the tackling had stopped but basically becoming non-contact you know and I think they've they, they got the balance back Dave, something I was interested to ask you was a, a bit a bit of um, a bit of the story about coming back from injury are you know okay Obviously, you were very unlucky and had to face up to the fact that your career was over. But lots of footballers have very serious injuries, and as you said, modern science, medicine nowadays is is, is so good and it's so advanced that actually a lot of players are able to get back. I just wonder what your thoughts were for how challenging that is mentally for a player. So I'm thinking about somebody like Raúl Jiménez at Wolves, who's had that horrendous kind of head injury, and he's back in the first team kind of this season. What's your take on how difficult that is psychologically to kind of get back to the level you were and kind of get back to the kind of levels of bravery you need to be a professional footballer? Bravery, stupidity, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's, it's hard for me to do on that. Obviously, I never 
came back to that yeah. level. But if I sort of tell you a little bit what happened with me, because I, I, I did go back to playing yeah. level five football and I'm, I'm playing open age football at the age of 54 now, um, which is not good for me. Picking up too many injuries, thinking I can still run about and I can't. But for me to get to that stage, so from 28, and I started playing over 35 football at 35, but for two, three years, I could kick the ball and hit one up. One up, I probably couldn't as much, but I had a, I told you before, I couldn't even watch football. You know, I could see, see a, a tackle coming together and I'd, I'd have to look away because I'd just got that sort of in my mind. And that took me two or three seasons to be able to watch. I'm talking live football now, live football on the TV, because you're so far away from it. When she goes to my brother was involved with Dunley football, and I started going to watch them. You know, you're close up, the tackle's up to five yards away from me. My family's have to look away, or, you know, if someone did go through really hard, I'd be like, oh, God, you know, just totally. Bad. So it took me quite a while to admit the process of, um, I used to go and play five-side football, and the rule was that you couldn't tackle me, which great. Just give me the ball and go from one end to the other. Um, but, you know, and then that lasted for a throw through my own. It was great because it allowed me to sort of build the confidence. It's the confidence that you need to build back. For that. And this happens with all injuries as well because, if, you know, if you're going back to well, any level, but professional, if you broke your leg and you're coming back, it's that first crunching tackle. If you're thinking about it, you're going to sort of pull out and probably hurt yourself even more. It's when you make that tackle that you hadn't thought about it, just goes through, you win the ball, and then you think, oh, afterwards, you think, oh, no, that's fine of it. And that's that confidence thing that makes you go, right, I'm getting over it now. The fear factor you have to get gone. And so with me, I, I, I built that up over probably that a five-year period before I started playing full contact uh, football. And my, you know, my dad would go out to Mad even I was playing for his over 35 football season. You know, he'd be, he'd be like pulling his hair out because I'd still be like, you know, slide tackling in and doing all the stuff I shouldn't have been doing. But that's my game. My game was win the ball, tackle the ball, head the ball, give it to someone else. And that, I can't all of a sudden become like Messi or Ronaldo. I always use the uh, analogy you never lose what you never had. It's obviously, you know, you sort of said it's 24, 25 years uh, since the injury that, that you said you're famous for. And it sounds like you've been on quite a journey over that time in terms of in the early years, not even being able to watch football or even think about football. So kind of going back to watch it, you mentioned that you enjoyed the Euro, so you must enjoy watching football again and you're playing. So so I guess your 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 overarching feelings about the injury must have changed over time. What What's your feeling now when you look back and you think about that injury? You know, what, what's the thing in your head when you when you kind of look back at what happened to you? Um, there's a, a sense of, obviously I'm not glad it happened, but because of the way it did happen and where it happened and the press it's, it sort of got, and, and not that I want people to be going talking all the time, because I'll be honest, sometimes it can be, you know, I, I'm 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 very good talking to people, and they'll say, "Oh no, I know you're bored of talking about it, things like that." But I'll I'll give I'll give anyone the time of day to stop and have a chat and ask me the questions. Like these questions, you've asked me some new ones I've not been asked. Before, but you know, for 25 years, I've I've done that many times. But I'm, I'm quite a huge humble sort of person, and um, I'll give anyone the time of day that wants to stop and have a chat. So. With that happened, it actually opens quite a few doors. It's a starting point to talk to someone about. It. It's an introduction. Someone or you know, if, I, if I'm in meetings there, and you know, what day-to-day stuff has changed completely. But people, it's like a 
it's like a break the ice piece for anything. You know, we went to a care home the other week to, to give um, the people who couldn't get out of their care home, it was give them an eye follow to watch one of the Conference City games. And someone was there, one of the nurses actually, and she, she brought a picture. And when I came back from my injury, I went to the local newspaper and they, they had people, people were queuing down the road to come and meet me after the injury. And it was there seven hours signing autographs and things like that. And she brought a picture of her as a, a little girl of about about four or five years old with a with a brother and she brought it into there and it's just you know and it's those memories that people um bring back and then remind me of, of what happened and then i've got a great affiliation for the people obviously and manchester so they're absolutely superb so the downside of the injuries that stopped me playing but like i say i've always looked, looked forwards not backwards it's then allowed me to go into a whole host of different things and, uh, and at the end of the day it's a, it's a conversational piece you know, to someone I've not met before, they'll ask me, I'll never say, oh, by the way, do you know I've got the leg? That, that's not one of me. But usually they'll see the name, they'll see me limp, and then you can see that <laughs> things go around and they'll go, are you? <laughs> I mean, I, I ordered some flooring off someone the other day and just saw the name come up on the, on the email I sent him and he said, are you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, they'll, then they'll, they'll tell me where they were at that that, that point. So if everyone else goes, you know, like you know, Kennedy was shot. They always remember where they were. <laughs> One of the biggest things is um, they, they tell me they were there. A lot of people tell me they were there at that game. And the amount of people who said they were there at that game, then Old Trafford was that sort of thing, like 100,000 people. <laughs> I think there's only 4,000 top fans there that day. No, it's, it, it's, it's a conversational piece. You know, it's better, to be, better to be remembered for something than nothing. Dave, that's a really, I think, a really nice way to, to end, end the interview. Thanks so much for, for taking the time out to, to speak to us. Really, um, really interesting discussion. And uh, yeah, all the best. Um, all the best over the forthcoming season. No, cheers, guys. Yeah. I mean, it looks like you're going to have a good season at Coventry this year as well, Dave. So uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, we're playing good football at the moment. It's good to watch. And the crowds are coming back. You know, we had 18,000 for the midweek match uh, last Wednesday. You know, we'll have, we'll have 20 probably uh, tonight. Well, enjoy it, Dave. It's really nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.